We're in our series called What, Why, and How, and we're asking big God questions. And this morning, we're asking the question, how can I reconcile my belief in God and science? And this is a great question. Uh, Many of you have probably gone to college. Some of you in the room are college students. And maybe you went to a science class at college. And you probably heard something like this on the first day. Hi, I'm Professor So-and-so. This is Science 101, and we will not be talking about God in my class because God and science don't go together. You've probably heard something like that before. This morning, I hope to convince you that nothing is further from the truth. God and science go directly together. In fact, who God is and what we study in science are directly connected. Now, this question, how can I reconcile belief in God with science, is really saying that if evolution is true and what we've discovered in science is true, then we don't need God. We don't need to have God. We we know how we got here. We know why we're here. We know what we're doing here. And we don't really need God at all. So the ultimate conclusion in this question is that God and science can't coexist. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I think God and science can be connected together. In fact, I would say God and science are impossible to disconnect. Here's why. As believers, we believe that God created the world, that everything we see, everything we know, everything we can prove scientifically is all because we are actually studying or observing what matter does in all of its different forms. And God created matter. God created everything we see. So science is really the observation of all of God's creation in varied forms. Plants, animals, rocks, space, microscopic biological life. All of it is really the observation and the study of what God has created. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in the beginning, in a minute. I'd like to share with you three ideas. There's tons of them, but I just want to share three, basically because I only have 25 minutes. Otherwise, I'd share a ton of them with you because I love this. But I want to share some ideas with you that help us reconcile belief in God with science. The first one is this, that the universe has a beginning. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, Science says the universe has a beginning, But who else says science has a beginning? We do. We both believe that. We both believe God's word declares that. As Christians, we believe the world had a beginning. And science proves that the world had a beginning. Now, we prove it scientifically in all kinds of ways, like Newton's second law of thermodynamics, Einstein's theory of relativity, the evidence of the abundance of helium in the universe, the uh, abundance of radiation left over in the universe, all of these things and, and really hundreds of more all prove that scientifically the world had a start and then it gradually grew from there. All science proves that. In fact, every field of science proves it. Science, scientists call it or evolution calls it what? The Big Bang. We all remember it in our textbooks. Whether it was actually a sound or not, probably not. But um, it's this idea that everything came from nothing. 
We had this big start and this big start created everything that we see here. Now, we all know there are tons of ideas about how that got started. So for instance, if you go on Google and you say, uh, show me all the ideas about the Big Bang, you'll come up with a, a wide variety of different ideas that different scientists have about how the Big Bang got started, which is an important point. And the point is this, we don't really know because none of us were there. The evolutionists don't know but we have God's word that tells us exactly what was happening in that point, in that moment. Now, here's what else we know. Nearly everything points to this moment. Everything points to this moment. Science points to this moment. God's word points to this moment where everything had a beginning. Now, there are lots of theories about this, and I wanna say something that I think is very important that there's absolutely nothing wrong with a theory. Do we all get that? There's nothing wrong with the theory, especially when we don't know what actually happened. At that point, we actually want to come up with some, uh, as close as we can to what might have happened. Let me give you an example. President Kennedy's assassination. How many theories have you heard? If you watch an, an hour-long show, they'll have four or five different theories about where the shooter was, a grassy knoll, a building that he shot from, all these different theories and ideas. And it's because we don't know the truth. So we come up with these theories, these ideas. Now, wouldn't it be great if some mafia guy just came out and said, yo, we did it. <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? Like, we, we don't have that. So we come up with theories and they all sound good because they're part of the facts, but not all of the facts. And the exact same thing happens in science. We have some facts, but not all the facts, so we make theories and conjectures. And that's okay. But let me ask two questions in regards to that. What do we call it when we believe something is the truth even though we can't see it? Faith. Faith. There's no other definition. When we believe something is true that we can't see, that is faith. So let me ask a question. Can we see or observe the Big Bang? No. Can we observe everything we believe about science? No. Can we believe most? Yes. But we can't observe all of it. So we've got theories. So let me ask another question. Why is faith considered scientific in the evolutionary community, but in the religious community, faith is considered absurd? A crutch. Nonsense. Interesting. Just something to think about. Now, here's what we've discovered as believers. We also believe that there's a beginning to the universe. We see it in God's word all over the place. In Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, that's helpful, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then verse 3, and God said. This is a great phrase, and God said. As you read the rest of the chapter, it'll say, and God said 
let there be light. God said, let there be sea and land. God said, let there be animals. God said, let there be humans. See, what we discover from God's word is God is the one who creates something out of nothing. That when God says something, life happens. Now, I'm assuming most of you have experienced that. That at some point in your life, God spoke to you. And when God spoke to you, life happened in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. Life began to happen. And you became a new creation, as, God, as God's word says, because God spoke to you. That's what happened at the beginning of the world. When God spoke, new things got created, millions of them, billions of them, in solar systems beyond number. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, says it like this. The Son, being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. See, by faith, this is how we believe the world began, that life began out of nothing when God spoke. Science points to a beginning. God's word points to a beginning. This is how God's word and our relationship with God are related together with science. Now, let me show you another way. It's a philosophical point, but that gets proved in a scientific way that the universe also had a beginning, but also points to the evidence that God, or an intelligent designer at least, is the starter of everything. I'm gonna use these dominoes in a way to help us with that. And, and it's a philosophical and scientific idea called event causation and agent causation. Now, event causation is this. There are events that are happening all the time in our world now, but there were also events that took place in the creation of our planet and our solar system, and all of them had to work together to get us to the place where we are now. It's similar to this line of dominoes. Domino number two is gonna fall and hit domino number three. That's an event. Domino number three is gonna hit domino number four. That's another event. Number four is gonna hit five, five is gonna hit six, on and on and on and on, until that domino falls off the table. Those are all events that must take place. Just like in the creation of our world, there were all kinds of events that had to take place. But let me show you agent causation. I'm gonna grab a chair, because you guys are all in chairs, and I wanna get a little comfortable too, because this might take a while. I'm gonna sit in a chair, and we're gonna watch those dominoes fall down. Boring is right. <laughs> Anybody got an idea? Yeah, what? Push it, start it. Oh, push it over. Great idea. That would be agent causation. See, we'll be here forever just watching the dominoes, right? Somebody's got to start the events. 
It's called agent causation. Another way to say it is the Big Bang. Another way to say it is in the beginning, God created. Agent causation. You can't have event causation without agent causation. See, what we would say as creationists is that the agent that started the events is the God of the Bible. And if you believe that God was the agent that caused the universe to exist, can I tell you, you're in good company. You're sitting in a room with really smart people if you believe that. I'm gonna talk to you in a minute about a man named Stephen Meyer who works at the Discovery Institute. He is one of several hundred of the smartest scientists in the world today that are either creationist or intelligent design people. They're some of the smartest scientists in the world in their field and they're believing in intelligent design for a reason because of agent causation and event causation and about a thousand other things that all point to an intelligent designer. Now, if you believe in this, you sit in good company with people like Sir Isaac Newton. Say, well, is Sir Isaac Newton a really good scientist? Well, most people believe he's the greatest scientist of all time. That's not something I think, but commonly, whenever it's discussed who is the greatest scientist of all time, most of the time, Sir Isaac Newton is either the top or one of the top three. Most people believe that if Sir Isaac Newton was alive today, he would win between four and seven Nobel Peace Prizes all on his own based on his scientific discovery. This man is an incredible genius. But let me tell you something amazing about him. He was a creationist. He had no problem in his mind with God and science. Now you can read about that online if you would like. All of his written material is now online. It just became available about five years ago. And you can read all about what he thinks about evolution, which he actually, the word he uses is absurd. That's the word he uses for evolution, that matter could take place from nothing. He calls it utterly absurd. And that you don't understand anything about the science of matter if you believe that, which is an interesting concept. He also wrote a commentary for every book in the Bible because he was a Christ-following believer and the greatest scientist of all time. So if you believe in intelligent design and what God's word said, you're in pretty good company. The second reason that we can reconcile belief in God with science is because the universe is overwhelmingly complex. We don't live in a simple system. We live in a very, very complex system full of millions of very small complex systems. So our universe is not simple. Our solar system is not simple. It's incredibly complex. And there's a billion other solar systems out there that are also extremely complex. All of this complexity points to an intelligent designer. It points to someone that was the agent of causation. Let me give you an example. How many of you like your cell phone? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you like your cell phone. Some of you aren't raising your hand, and I've seen you with your phone, and I know you like it. Okay? 
We like our phones, don't we? There's, there's more complexity in this little handheld device than you and I could possibly imagine. The first computer took up a room the size of this auditorium and the inventor said that we will never find another computer that will be smaller than this one. <laughs> We've gotten a little more advanced, haven't we? So we have computers and cell phones and electricity and anybody like central heat and air? I do. I love getting on an airplane and flying to Florida and hanging out on the beach. I mean, we have all these complex things in our life and they were built by what? Intelligent humans. We call them engineers. These highly intelligent humans are are the reason for this explosion of information and innovation that you and I are seeing today. It's because intelligence creates complex systems that we see. The same is true for your brain, for your eye, for your knee, for your DNA strand, your RNA, your protein molecules in your body. All of them are highly intelligent and complex systems that were built by an engineer named God. It's interesting how much information is required, complex information, genetic information, to take you from a human embryo to become a baby. It's crazy. Let me give you one example that I think is a great example of intelligent design, that we are very complex. When our eye is forming in our mother's womb, it forms from the front to the back and the back to the front. And they say that there are about a million different synapses that all are heading towards one another. And they're growing from the front of your eye and the back of your eye. And they meet in the middle to form your eye. A million of these little synapses, but here's what's crazy. They all have to meet one another in the perfect spot. If one of those synapses is out of order, which actually means at that point two are out of order because I'm really good at math. That was funny. You can laugh, it's okay. If two of those are out of order, then your eye doesn't work very well. There'll be a deformity or a mutation in your eye. A million of those things must meet perfectly together. That takes somebody pretty intelligent to figure that out and to design that. How do I know that? Because the other day I, I put a lamp in our kitchen and I only had to put two wires together and I messed it up. <laughs> I had to put a black one and a red one together and I thought I did it and then I turned the switch on and nothing. I got nothing. What? It was just a black wire and a red wire. I put them together. I messed it up. If I couldn't figure out, and I'm, I'm not a Neanderthal, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world either. I'm a couple French fries short of a Happy Meal once in a while. <laughs> but if I had to put a million wires together to make that lamp work, it ain't happening. It's, it's never gonna happen. Now, I could call TJ over and then he'd figure it out and we'd be good. But it ain't happening in my house. I know it ain't happening in yours either, but that was, I just thought it would be funny. See, our universe is highly complex, and we're just talking about one thing, the eye. 
I remember when Kate was having her problems with her, these headaches that she just had nonstop forever. We went to one of the top brain specialists in the world who was at UW. We walked in her office and she said, um, first of all, let me tell you something before we get, get started here. Uh, nobody normally says this because we don't like to say it publicly, but do you know how much we know about the brain and how it works? We were like, nope. She goes, that's right, nothing. We know nothing. We're practicing. And I'm like, and you're going to practice on her? Uh Uh-huh. We have a brain. We have a computer in our head that we still have not figured out because God created it. See, the scientific breakthroughs that we've seen in the past 50 years, which, by the way, are so awesome, are incredible. Like, I love watching Nova. It's like one of my favorite shows. I just have to throw out the evolutionary stuff, the comments that are made about billions of years, and I just know, no, God did that. But the complexity is astounding. Yet, at the same time, I watched that movie about the emperor penguin, and in the movie, four or five times, they said, We don't know why the penguin marches from the sea to the South Pole. We claim to be super intelligent, but we don't even know why a penguin walks from here to there. It's because it's complex. And it's overwhelming for us. Now, one of the sciences that is proving the existence of overwhelming complexity today is microbiology. In fact, I'm going to show you in a minute how microbiology has actually proven that evolution is impossible. But before we do, I want to show you something that is really cool. I want to, I want to show you a video about the amazing flagellum, which is a microbiological organism in your cell. And Stephen Meyer, the president of the Discovery Institute, who is an absolutely genius of a man, By the way, if you want a whole bunch of awesome information about science and intelligent design and God and how uh, God and science work together, you can go on the discoveryinstitute.com and there's tons of information there by hundreds of the smartest scientists in the world today and they will all point you towards intelligent design. Stephen's going to talk about some cool things on this video, so let's watch it for a minute. In Darwin's Black Box in 1996, uh, Behe spotlighted and made famous a number of really interesting discoveries that had been occurring in biochemistry and cell biology over the last two or three decades. And what, what biologists, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists have been discovering is that at the level of individual cells, there are little tiny examples of nanotechnology, little tiny machines at work the flagellar motor is the one that Behe made most famous. It's a rotary engine that uh, powers a whip-like tail, a protein tail, that functions like a propeller. And it moves the bacterium through liquid, enabling the bacterium to essentially track down its food, its food supply. And this little machine includes a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And the machine in some, in some bacterial systems turns at 100,000 RPMs in one direction and can reverse direction on a quarter of a turn and turn 100,000 RPM in the other direction. It's an extraordinary piece of nanotechnology. It's high tech in low life. 
And so uh, just by spotlighting these extraordinary pieces of nanotechnology inside cells, and the flagellar motor wasn't the only one, uh, one by any means, Behe, in a sense, opened up uh, a window for people. He opened up the black box of the, of the inner workings of the cell and said, look, this is much more complex than anything that, than, than anything that the early evolutionary biologists had envisioned. Darwin knew nothing of this type of nanotechnology in cells, and at the very least, we've got to come up with an explanation for this. Stephen's right. We do have to come up with an explanation for a motor like that. And the explanation is that we're all here as a result of intelligent design. Now, here's what's interesting. I, I love this little motor. It's just like your car. Did you notice that? It's got all the same functions of your car. So we could prove how, how amazing this little flagellum motor is. So take your car out to I-90 and start heading towards Seattle. And I give you full permission to go as fast as you can. Go as fast as you can. And some of you might get up to 125 or whatever. And then right when you're at that speed where you think your car can go the fastest and there are no police officers around, throw it in reverse and see what happens. I mean, see if you're doing 125 and then in a quarter of a second, you're doing 125 in the opposite direction. How many think that's going to happen? It's not going to happen. But in this motor, it can. How can that motor, and it's not going 125 miles an hour, it's going 125,000 miles an hour at 100,000 RPMs. Our car's going 6,000 RPMs. Like this, is, this motor is extraordinary. Good thing this motor wasn't in a jet or else we'd all pass out as we flew in it. Right? This is an incredibly amazing biological microorganism that proves that our world is based on intelligent design. Yet, what we will often hear from experiments and labs is this. For instance, there was a study done at Michigan State recently where they did 31 experiments, 31,000 experiments with E. coli, and one strain produced citrate. And you'll hear stuff like this. See, this proves the evolutionary process. No, that proves microevolution, not macroevolution. Microevolution happens all the time. Happens everywhere around the planet all the time. Another word for it is adaptation. Microevolution is very scientific. It's very true. But microevolution is not macroevolution. And here's why. Microevolution or micro changes in our body requires pre-existing genetic information. So it requires the DNA strand that's already in your body. It requires all of the DNA and the RNA and the cells and the protein that's already in your body. And with that information, it can make a small change, a micro change. But a macro change is totally different. A macro change is what we learned about in school during the Cambrian period, where there was this explosion of change where we changed in form over and over and over again through the evolutionary process. Birds developed wings. Uh, we developed bigger muscles. We could run faster. We could stand taller. We went from four-legged creatures to two. All of that, that enormous explosion, that's macro evolution. Well, that can't happen 
without microevolution. Here's what's interesting. Macroevolution requires new genetic information. Your body would need new genetic information about how to grow a better muscle, about how to grow a new wing, about how to develop something in your body that would allow it to work through the evolutionary process. And to this date, we cannot scientifically or have ever seen a life form create its own new genetic information. Now, this has recently been proven. You've probably not heard about it. I had never heard about it until I watched another one of Stephen Meyer's uh, videos online that he presented this information at a conference. You won't hear about it in the news because it absolutely disproves evolution. Here's what happened. A couple years ago, some evolutionary microbiologists in Europe said, you know what? We can prove evolution. And the way we can prove it is we know now because of the DNA strand and mapping of the DNA strand and RNA and protein and the cells, what we know, we know that in order for our body to have a macro change, it must first have a micro change in the DNA strand. So that requires for new genetic code to be brought into the DNA strand and into the cell and connected in that DNA strand, and then that macro change can happen. Well, the good thing is we can pull apart a DNA strand now. We can pull a section apart and put a new section of DNA in. It's one of the reasons we're getting some awesome medical breakthroughs right now in the world because we're doing that and it's changing how we deal with disease, which is a really cool thing. So they said, well, we can take some mice and we can add some genetic information to that mice's DNA strand and we'll get to watch it go through the evolutionary process and we will prove that at some point new genetic information made it to our bodies and we evolved. So they did thousands of experiments and they put new genetic information. And every time they put new genetic information into the DNA code, there was a genetic mutation. Not evolution, there was a genetic mutation. The mouse all of a sudden couldn't see out of its left eye lost its tail, its right arm didn't work, it couldn't run fast, it became dumber. Every single time there was a genetic mutation. So guess what these scientists did? They called Stephen Meyer and they said, Stephen, we just all became intelligent design guys. Evolution is impossible because if it can't happen at the micro level, it can't happen at the macro level. Now, why haven't we heard about that in the news? Why haven't we heard about the greatest scientific breakthrough that has probably ever happened in the past 250 years? Because evolution is not about science. It's about removing God. It's not about science. Because if it was about science, we'd want to hear information about good science. But we don't hear that because it's not about science. The last reason that I think we can reconcile God and science is based on a book by J. Warner Wallace called God's Crime Scene. And I'm just going to talk about this for 
a really short amount of time. You can go get the book if you want and you can read about more because I'm four and a half minutes over. But J. Warner Wallace is a cold case detective and a scientist who says this, that the scientific observations we see inside our world are proving that there is someone outside our world. It goes along the theory of what a cold case detective does. As you know, these are cases that are old, 30, 40 years old, but they still have the evidence from inside the room and they need to take that evidence. And now that we have modern technology and DNA and we can do things with people's blood, we can prove that there was somebody in the room and we can find out who that person was, right? From a case that when we didn't have that technology, we couldn't prove who that person was. So what, what Mr. Wallace did most of his life was take that information and that evidence and prove who that person was in the room. And he does that with DNA, with uh, fingerprints, with a footprint, with a, a hair, with motive, with a murder weapon. In other words, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. That's what he proves. That Colonel Mustard was in the room and this is what he did and this is when. You can do that with good evidence. Now, what Mr. Wallace would say is this, that as believers, what God's word tells us is that in the beginning, what we observe in our world today proves that God was there in the beginning. And the things that we see inside our world prove that, like the universe has a beginning, the universe is fine-tuned, life originated from non-life, biological organisms display attributes of design, evil and injustice persist, moral truth exists, Humans possess free will. We have a consciousness. All of these things that are happening inside our world are proof that there was an intelligent designer and that that designer was God in the beginning. Would you stand with me? As we conclude, what we see as evidence around us is the fingerprints of God are on everything. That God's fingerprints are everywhere that we look. But we still have this challenge of reconciling our relationship with God and science. Even though we see that science is often pointing to God. It's interesting that sometimes there's still this block, a mental block but maybe that block is more than mental. Maybe it's actually spiritual. Let me give you an example of that. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, the Apostle Paul talks about that spiritual block that leads to a mental block, that leads to a lifestyle block. As we shut God out, we end up at a place that he never intended for us to be. The word says opposition to truth cannot be excused on the basis of ignorance because from the creation of the world, the invisible qualities of God's nature have been made visible, such as his eternal power and transcendence. He has made his wonderful attributes easily perceived. 
For seeing the visible makes us understand the invisible. So then, this leaves everyone without excuse. Throughout human history, the fingerprints of God were upon them. Yet, they refused to honor him as God or even be thankful for his kindness. Instead, they entertained corrupt and foolish thoughts about what God was like. This left them with nothing but misguided hearts steeped in moral darkness. Although claiming to be super intelligent, they were in fact shallow fools. For only a fool would trade the unfading splendor of the immortal God to worship the fading image of other humans. Idols made to look like people, animals, birds, and even creeping reptiles. See, here's what's interesting. Paul said often the mental block we have is because of what we worship. And we're all worshiping something. Because we all have faith in some direction. And when we put our faith in evolution or in science instead of God, then it's clear we end up in a misguided place in life. And so what I think is really happening, according to God's word, is not a scientific approach at all. It's a spiritual one. What God's word teaches us over and over and over again is that God and science absolutely go together. Would you pray with me?